Hi, I'm Ravi. And I'm Shell. And you're listening to Two Lost Souls. The podcast that guides you through the journey to becoming a CBT therapist. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, whenever and wherever you are listening. Welcome to the Two Lost Souls podcast. The title of today's episode is Accreditation, Accreditation, Accreditation. My name is Ravi Amrath, and in today's show, we will be discussing the all-important things to consider when applying for BABCP accreditation. But let me begin by saying that this is your podcast guide to surviving a high-intensity CBT course. We pride ourselves on creating a safe space for trainees, qualified therapists, and those who are generally curious. Honesty is our policy, and we tell it how we see it, but we'd love to hear your views too. As usual, I'm joined in the therapy room today by the superb Michelle Sudbury. How's it going, Michelle? Yeah, it's really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you as well. Um good news this week actually um i've actually graduated from the high intensity cbt course thank you very much um so i can officially remove the word trainee from my email signatures um and i can um yeah feel a little bit more worried about my practice for a bit before i (laughs) fully get the training wheels off well done you it's a big thing thank you very much it does feel like a yeah, a new chapter, which is both exciting and daunting at the same time. Um, but before uh, we move on with the rest of the episode today, uh, let me just remind all the listeners out there that if you have any particular questions or topics that you'd like to see covered in Two Lost Souls, uh, reach out to us on Twitter at TLS underscore pod or by email at two lost souls podcast at gmail.com. So today is a very exciting episode for us, um, Shell, not only because uh, this is the last episode that we're going to record before Christmas, um, Merry Christmas, by the way, Um, Mm -hmm. but this is our first episode where we are joined by a guest. We have the pleasure of being joined by Sarah Lapp. Sarah, would you would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, BABCP accredited, so CBT trained. And um, I work in a clinical psychology training program, but I also work in a clinical team delivering CBT, um, not an IAPT. And um, I also um, teach on a CBT diploma um a different part of the university so i've got kind of three relevant roles really to to kind of talk about today okay amazing and um the the other thing that you are are quite passionate about when we have spoken Mm. um off air in the past is about uh, accreditation as well and i suppose um knowing that lots of our listeners are going to be um 
at the stage of their their courses where this is something where they might need to start thinking about um, accreditation at the end of the process uh, do you have any I suppose any hints or tips first of all for people who who maybe have one eye on that at the moment as as for what they might need to do when they get to that stage mm. I think and I think you've mentioned it in in a previous podcast but like logging logging everything yes. <laughs> even even if you um don't use the kind of official paperwork but what you know using whatever works for you to log all your clinical contacts all your supervision all your sort of self-directed study that's cbt related um, and that can include you know reading papers and uh, you know working through your reference lists in preparation for whatever academic work you need to do but it, it can also be attending conferences and listening to the podcasts like this um, you know, the, um, so just, just note, making a note of all of that, really, and getting as much supervision as you can. It doesn't always just have to be that weekly or fortnightly one-to-one, you know, the, the university group supervision. But also you might be going to some peer supervision or you might be going to your kind of workplace. It's other opportunities for supervision. So it, it all adds up and it all um, helps argue your case, really, for, for when you're applying for that another accreditation with the BABCP doesn't it yeah of course yeah. well knowing and, and just I suppose from my perspective as I was going through the training I think the accreditation side of it actually almost remained this sort of end mystery goal at the end of it where we're actually a lot about it didn't seem that clear as we were going through the process um I, I suppose a question for, for both of you really what what does the landscape look like at the moment in terms of I mean, what is accreditation, first of all? And also, um, why should someone become accredited? I suppose from an IAPT perspective, I'll I'll come at it from that angle because that's obviously where I work. Um, I think, firstly, accreditation will almost kind of prove your level of competency. Um, It will will kind of demonstrate that you have the required skill to be, um, you know, able to work in that field and... Um, and that you've proven that you can do that through series of evidences. Um, it, so I think it is really important. And within an IAP service, um, I, I, I encourage all the trainees that I work with or supervise um, or who come into the team to apply for their provisional accreditation as soon as they qualify. Um, because the process gets easier if you do that. Um, the longer you leave it, the more information you have to accrue and then you have to evidence. So do it straight away. You've just completed a course. You've got a plethora of information and evidence. So use it. Don't waste it. Um, many IAP services now are requiring you to be accredited um, because it supports the banding that you come in at. Um, back in the day, you would qualify. You would come in at a band six. You would work a couple of years as a band six, prove your worth. And then, you know, if you were fortunate enough to be offered a band seven position, you could apply for it and be moved up. But actually, I don't know if this is good or bad, but most newly qualifieds can go straight into a band seven job now, um, which is great for them um, and, and their pay packets. But also services kind of want to see that you're worth what we're paying you. So starting that accreditation process I think it proves that you're serious about your role that you're you're committing to it and you're signing up to a set of um a a kind of set of rules for for how you're going to work so that that's from an IAP perspective 
absolutely i completely agree uh shell but also um it's 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 important for our patients our, our the populations that we serve really to know that we've been trained to a certain standard and it's really easy for them to look up what what does BABCP accreditation actually mean and and see those minimum training standards I mean I'm not saying everyone would but um and I I think I think it's a really good kind of benchmark uh, for people to kind of trust and and actually at band seven you know lots of people lots in my experience anyway lots of um people are employed at band seven and they haven't got as good training as um, a level two BABCP accredited CBT, you know, diploma, or even if it's not um, accredited, they've got some very patchy bits of training that don't really add up to anything cohesive. Um, And they really struggle to assess, formulate and intervene from an evidence-based perspective and and in in their um, roles if they've got a kind of mental health role. So I think having that CBT training and then having that accreditation kind of stamp of approval um, is really, really well deserved and just get it. I mean, I know it's a bit yeah. expensive and we can kind of come on to fees and things, but um, any any profession comes with some extra costs in terms of your own sort of professional um, indemnities and registrations, but it's, I think it's well worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's. I think we can probably move on to those costs straight away. I think um, Sarah, because um, anyone who has potentially recently qualified or who sort of keeps their finger on the pulse with what's going on with with the BABCP at the moment will know that um, fees have gone up in terms of the accreditation process. Do you think? I mean, particularly now knowing that we're going through a pretty tough time in terms of cost of living, etc. Do you think accreditation still represents sort of good value for money? Well, I mean, I think we, this is a contentious issue, isn't it? And not, 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 not obviously. Um, but I think um, the initial cost for provisional accreditation is is quite a quite a sizable, you know amount but then once you become fully accredited it comes right down again to something much more affordable I think like 65 pounds a year um just kind of running to keep your your running membership and your access to journals and your your magazine and just generally your your status so I think it is affordable in the long run um but there is an up there are a few upfront costs that, that are a bit um difficult to swallow especially at the moment yeah what what do you think I think I think it was I think it was sixty five pound a year for your reaccreditation I think, um, and I I believe that's gone up to around eighty nine. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, something like that. So it's got it has gone up quite a large amount. Um, the value for money question that's that's a really good point. And and you know you mentioned um, access to journals and things, which is true. That those are really valuable resources. Um, I don't know if that's slowed down a little bit in the last mm-hmm. few years. We, we actually had a really interesting discussion at work just, just a few days ago um, about the amount of research that's happening within CBT at the moment. And it does appear to have slowed down quite a bit since COVID, um, understandably, I suppose. So I'm not sure that we're getting the amount of new research that we've that we used to expect um, mm-hmm. and have. Um, so hopefully that will pick back up. And then I agree, I think it probably is quite good value for money in that respect because that's 
that is a very valuable resource, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I know that the, the 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 cost of provisional accreditation basically covers the cost of the um, accreditation liaison officer to pour through your form and check yeah. all your evidence. And it normally takes them um, quite a long time. So if you think of, I don't know, what is it, £180? I don't, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. I think that's right. Yeah, um, something like it probably, that. It's probably a day's work for them, really. And then if there's problems with it, um, they don't get any extra money for liaising with that applicant and and right. asking for the extra stuff. So it can kind of become how long is a piece of string. So I can kind of understand why that that they need to cover their costs for that. But um, yeah, I, 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 it's it's not great timing to increase fees at the moment. It really isn't. No, we we uh we went along to the um. Is it the AGM? Yeah, it was, went along it was to the it was the pre AGM, the pre AGM, yeah, to to kind of discuss the increase in fees, and I think they recognise that it's the timing's not great, but it does fall in with um, their application for accreditation. So the BABCP are obviously going to apply for um, registration with the PSA, Ravi. Yeah, PSA, Professional Standards uh, Authority, I think. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so, so they kind of justified the the increase in costs um, there. Mm. Yeah. I didn't. I haven't even heard of heard of them though. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it, it maybe it really counts somewhere along the line to stick to stakeholders. Then, um, I mean, I also know that because of the the expansion of both high intensity CBT courses, but also clinical psychology training courses that they're going to be BABCP accredited, they're going to get a lot more members. So their income is going to be bigger anyway because there's going to be a lot more accredited people around. So I was sort of assuming they would, you know, enjoy that extra income that way rather than increasing the fees. But what who am I to say? What do I know? (laughs) It's a good point, though. It's a very good point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, Shell, you said they justified... Um, the kind of increase in fees I might take a bit more of a hard line and controversial view on that and I'll say I think they attempted to justify um, their their views on it Um, and and I'm not sure whether they sort of successfully did that but I suppose it's one of those things where people haven't really been given a choice with it and and I suppose it's the the only thing people can do really is is vote with their feet Um, and when they're trying to build um, an association of people um, that are kind of going to be the be all and end all when it comes to CBT standards in the UK. I'm guessing people only have one way to walk in that sense. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Looking at the the other side of that, though, I mean, you spoke about um, clinical psychology um, trainees mm. as well. Um, just thinking about those people who who would go on to complete their doctorates, for example, and they'd need to sort of maintain accreditation or registration with things like the HCPC and the BPS and would then sort of need this or potentially could use this on top of that what would you tell them to sort of incentivize them mm. getting accreditation with the BABCP I would say that I think that more and more it's going to become one of those desired slash um essential um, items on on job descriptions and person specifications. Um, it's not at the moment, but I think once there's been a few um, cohorts that have graduated from these vastly expanded doctorate courses, there's going to be um, a lot more 
kind of clout really to for for, for employers to say you, you must be BABCP accredited. And I think the driver from that is coming from the NHS long term plan, isn't it? Where there's a section in that that says that all psychological professionals should have um, kind of explicit evidence based training and accreditation in those trainings, not just CBT, but family therapy, systemic therapy as well, EMDR, things like that. So um, I think it's it's probably going to be something that, that might give you the edge um, over another candidate in the future. Um, I also think that it's it's kind of help, helps you to move forward in your career if you want to become more of a supervisor or a trainer. I'm not just thinking about clinical psychologists. I think there's a lot more... Um, opportunities for CBT therapists than, than ever before to, um, you know, in, seek those kinds of leadership opportunities. And I think if you're BABCP accredited, um, again, that's going to give you a bit more of an edge. It's something that, pe- that, that stakeholders and commissioners are really looking for. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think, you know, modelling that if you're sitting, you know, kind of higher up in the um, the food chain and then you need to model this to the therapists that are coming through um, and, and show its value, I, I guess, don't you? So um, I think you're right. It will give you the edge at interview. It's definitely something we factor in when we're recruiting. Um, so it's I think it's already there. We're already looking at it. I don't know if we I don't know if we would um, actively shortlist somebody who, who wasn't accredited and applying for a role where we we had accredited people mm. applying so yeah in an IAP service it's more of a given isn't it but absolutely yeah other community mental health teams where people don't even know what BABCB accreditation is yet that's true but they're really learning quickly and um and that we're having kind of documents and expectations sent to us from high going how many people in your service are BABCP accredited how many people are going on to accredited courses how many people are being trained up in enhanced CBT for for psychosis or for um personality disorders and you know the the expectations are are, seem to be coming down the line and you know we'll need to meet need to meet those expectations in in um community mental health teams but also there's there's new um teams one of which i work for which are supposed to bridge uh primary and secondary care so bridge between iapt and community mental health teams that's very valuable serious mental illness um and again we need we need to provide evidence-based therapies um and we need to provide them in a kind of flexible way that perhaps doesn't necessarily fit into the remit of of the IAPT service model and I think you've talked about that before on your own podcast haven't you about how um sometimes IAPT has to fit into the shape that's there rather than do what it what it sort of set out to do and let yeah. its um, let its staff deliver what they've been trained to deliver um and i think finally i mean i maybe i'm being a bit too hopeful but finally there does seem to be this movement called the transformation agenda which yeah. is seeking to integrate primary and secondary services a, a lot better for patients who perhaps wouldn't necessarily um have their needs met in iapt and perhaps wouldn't necessarily have their needs met in CMHTs either. This kind of um, step three and a half group, absolutely. That, um, and I think um, I'm hoping that, that there'll be more. There will definitely be more jobs for that. There's a huge push on um, increasing the workforce for that. 
bit. I've heard that apparently there's not going to be much of a primary care, secondary care divide in the future, that the vision is that it's just either community mental health or urgent and inpatient mental health. Um, and it's going to, you know, the, the sort of divide between primary and secondary is going to be, they're going to try and kind of remove that. And I have no idea how long that will take or, or you know, which parts of the country will be able to move forward that with that more quickly than others. But BABCP accreditation is integral to all of that because it's about, again, providing consistent, reliable yeah. um, uh, um, care for, for people with, with, with serious mental mental health problems. Yeah, it, it does begin to kind of standardise it across the, the country, doesn't it, I think? Um, and again, from a patient perspective, that's, that is going to help deliver more consistent care. Um, we, we often hear of people who have had one experience at one end of the country and a completely different experience at the other end of the country because of the way services are aligned and they work together. And it, and it can't continue like that. We need to be able to offer consistent and supportive care to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think that will go some way towards it. And I, I really hope that that comes in soon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we need it. Yeah, um, I mean, also there's a lot of, um, well, I don't know if a lot, but you know, you, you, IAP doesn't always have a brilliant reputation in secondary and specialist mental health services because, and I think yeah. it's so unfair because you're, you're, I'm talking, you know, saying you because I know you both work yeah. there, but um, you know, you're having to deal with really unwieldy sort of population with so so many different needs and they don't necessarily fit into step two and step three very well and of course you're going to have high dropouts if you're trying to meet the needs of that very very diverse population so you know um I think you get a bad press sometimes and I and I I, one of I feel like one of my roles is to kind of advocate for for IAPT because I know what what good work you do do um but yeah um you know we need to kind of make make eye up services do what they were, were setting out to do Absolutely. in the first place. Yeah, I, I, that's really nice to hear because it, it's true, and we do feel a little bit under the cost sometimes. I think, but um, we do get bad press, but we aren't working in eye up services at the moment. Unfortunately, we are trying to deliver eye up care um, or eye up level care and work at step two and step three but we're not we're working at step three and step three and a half um so our lovely pwp teams are dealing with more risk more complexity our high intensity teams are dealing with a lot more risk and complexity um that we're we're not trained to work with um in most cases um and where we do need that that specialist support um, and the intensive support that we can't provide within a you know a twelve to eighteen model um, session model. So um, it's it is really nice to hear that that's recognised because <laughs> we don't hear that a lot. We we just hear the bad stuff. Um, so yeah, because so those are the patients who go back to their GP or who you know the CMHT doesn't know what to do with either and they're the ones that say yeah. well I didn't help me well no because it wasn't I wasn't designed to help somebody with with your level of need that's um, right yeah so yeah but anyway there are people out there I'm not the only one who, who recognize that thank you well, that was uh, was definitely very affirming to hear and I think 
just as you were talking there, both of you, I mean, it struck me that particularly PWPs, as you mentioned, Shell, they tend to bear a lot of the brunt of this because they're, they're kind of the unofficial front door a lot of the time in terms yeah. of the, the first port of call for these people. They're generally referred um, either by their GP with a, a two to three word referral or alternatively they're signposted by their GP as just the general, oh, this these people will help you. Um, and I think sometimes it's a big ask of them, particularly as low intensity CBT therapists to kind of have an overall vision and actually be able to kind of have an, a bird's eye view of the entire mental health landscape and make a call as to whether not only something fits within their service, but which service as a whole within the entire landscape that someone would fit into, which I think is a big challenge. Just in terms of um, bringing us back to um, accreditation um, and that side of things, um, just a query that, that I had as someone who's relatively new on this journey, what's the difference between um, accreditation and, and re-accreditation? So I know you spoke earlier about a top tip for accreditation being sort of record keeping and making sure you um, had all the, the I's, dotted and T's crossed in terms of um, records, etc., to prove the work that you've done um what's the difference between the two processes i mean it just gets easier and easier basically the the, the hardest mountain to climb or hurdle to jump over is to get that provisional accreditation and get that letter letter back from the babcb going we have we approve your provisional accreditation <laughs> that is that's the time to pop the champagne yeah um because you're on the home run then and then for that next 12 months, you, all you need to do is keep your CBT practice going, keep receiving supervision from a CBT, CBT trained supervisor. They don't even have to be BABCP accredited at the moment, although uh, it helps. They do need to be CBT trained. Um, that only needs to be once a month, even if you're full time. Um, and you need to keep your CPD going, but you'd have to do that anyway to maintain your other kind of professional registration. So um it's really much easier that those 12 months as long as you're carrying on working you're going to get your full accreditation um which you do have to apply for but it's a much easier form after that 12 months if you go on mat leave or if you have some kind of sick leave you can send them a form to say that you're going to be um not in practice for a certain number of months and they'll just press yeah. pause so when you come back you can just pick up where you left off that's not the case if you haven't got your provisional yet if you're if you go off and have a baby or if you're ill, you've got to start all the way from that um, the beginning of your 12 months again when you get back. Not necessarily with your training, but certainly with your supervision and your, and your clinical hours. So uh, it's really, really great to get the, the provisional under your belt. And then once you've got full accreditation, again, it's even easier, isn't it, Shell? You just have basically just um, tick a box. They send you an email, you click on a link, you tick a box and you press submit. And you pay your fees. Yeah. You pay so your fees. Really you easy. declare, don't you? Just make your declaration. Yeah. And that's it. You've got another 12 months and you're all sorted. Unless you get called um, to prove your um, CPD and things like that. But that's never happened to me yet. Have you ever had to go through that? No, no. no. I, I think um, even when you do, it's actually really, it's really easy to evidence. Um, yeah. Because you can just, especially if you keep your, CV, your, your supervision logs um, even if you don't, you can cobble them together retrospectively because you'll have had you've got your supervision in your diary. You can just Absolutely. quickly cobble together twelve months of monthly supervision and and ping that yeah. off. I don't. I really think that it's that it's that initial hurdle, and then and then it's fine. And but I do hear of people letting their um, accreditation lapse. 
and then they yes. really regret it. I don't know if you've, because it's really hard to get reaccredited again. I've never let mine lapse, but I've also heard of somebody who had, um, and it came to light a few years after, um, and she had to go through the whole process again, um, and it, it caused a lot of stress in her life. Um, so, yeah, it's not something I would be wanting to do. <laughs> Um, just keep it going. Once it's there, you've done the hard work. You're absolutely right. That first one is difficult, but once it's done, it's done. And the rest of it then is is much more simple. Um, you might as well just keep it going. Mm. Got you. So, so yeah. the, the the main takeaways from this so far is to get the provisional accreditation done as early as you can. And yeah. Once you've got that uh, accreditation or that registration, you you just maintain Definitely. it where you can. Okay. And then you can start aiming towards becoming a, a an accredited supervisor um i haven't yeah. i haven't filled in that form yet it's been on my to-do list for about two or three years um hasn't yet come up in my appraisals but i'm sure it will eventually <laughs> um i don't again i don't think that's going to be nearly as hard as evidencing provisional accreditation but there is you know you've got to have a certain number you've got to be providing a certain amount of supervision per month and attending supervision of supervision regularly and you've got to prove that you've taught a certain number of hours of, of cbt so you know there's something to always something more to aspire to yeah I've, I've not i've not kind of delved into that either yet um <laughs> i've just settled with what i've got for now um but yeah. yeah definitely in the future it might be something i look at because again it's kind of quite nice to have to your mm. to your name as well isn't it and if it gives you a bit of an edge when you're applying for jobs um so clinical supervisors are being employed within IAP services to just provide supervision. So mm, mm. it would give you a bit of an edge over other applicants, perhaps. So mm, it, it yeah. might be a nice thing to look into. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Thinking about that for for some listeners who we have who, are, who might be just starting their, their journeys, as it were, in terms of um, CBT and, and high intensity practice, and maybe thinking in the long term that there's maybe a school of thought, and, and some people that I've spoken to have expressed this thought that supervising is quite a, a daunting thing to do um in terms of oh, I'm a, I've only just got my training wheels at this point I'm not sure you know what I'm going to do in the future I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to sort of advise anyone else and what to do um what is your advice to to anyone like that in terms of the long-term view and the opportunities that might present themselves well Shell what was it like when they asked you to start supervising I was really keen to get going with it. So I asked if I could go on the supervisor's course as soon as I qualified. I was told no. <laughs> um, have a year, settle in um, mm. and then come back to us. And that's what I did. Um, it's the, it's my most favourite bit of my job. I love it. I, I love working with both qualified and trainees, but trainees in particular. Um, I think it's such a valuable and privileged thing to get to to offer um, and I know that sounds a little bit soppy but it is you are you see trainees particularly when they're very vulnerable anxious and you get to guide and support in a way that you don't get to do in, in other roles that you might have in within the team so I love it I really love it I think it keeps my practice fresh I learn a lot from supervisees which I suppose selfishly I really like because it, it keeps me up to date, keeps me current, keeps me interested. Um, I want to go off and learn new things because I want to both share with supervisees, 
but also kind of feel equipped so that if they come to me, I'm not embarrassed because I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, so I, I really love it. It's, it is the, my favourite bit of my job. Yeah, yeah, I, would, I totally agree with everything you've said. And when I um, I sort of put myself out there to start supervising, um, I was I was just, you know, it was the classic imposter um syndrome that like you never goes away you never goes away you just learn to live with it don't you but um I was just like oh dear um I these people are you know they I might be more experienced in CBT than them but they've worked in the NHS a lot longer than me and they've got other training that I don't have and they're seeing a population you know so my first supervisor role was working with people in a perinatal mental health team and I'd never worked in that before so I was just like what, what have I got to offer but actually I did you know they, they were they really really appreciated some proper kind of you know going through formulations and you know all yeah. those core skills really come into play um and then yeah, yeah like you said Charles, learning learning from them as well learning about mothers and babies was, was fascinating for me in that that early role and then since then yeah I mean I've some of my supervisees just amazing they, what they what they do what they manage to complete every week the kind of complexity that they're dealing with and the the pain and suffering that, um that their clients you know it's just you, it's a real privilege to be that person that, that 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 therapist comes to for their psychological safety and to get that yes. sort of nurture and reassurance and you're doing a great job um let's think about this together you're not on your own you know it's a really really satisfying role oh I completely agree you said that beautifully <laughs> completely agree it's really it's really um it's like doing CBT with a, a client that's just made for CBT often supervising yes. because your your supervisor knows what to expect if you've trained them up well on and you know if you've worked together on a on a good contract and they know what's expected of them they come fully prepared um, or at least they seem they seem to, <laughs> and um, and yeah, and it's just it's a it's a dream. Occasionally, there's going to be conflicts and ruptures and difficulties uh, that arise. But again, that's all part of the the learning. And I've really appreciated learning from slightly more tricky supervised supervision relationships that I've had, where maybe the supervisee has extra needs that I didn't at first know about, or maybe they're having a really tough time with it with a colleague. And um, and so I've had to kind of use my supervision of supervision to kind of learn how to navigate that. And again, that just builds on your own leadership competencies and your confidence, really, as a as an experienced professional. That was a, a really good point. I'm hoping so, particularly given that I mentioned earlier on that, that some of this has come from hearing other colleagues um, or other um, fellow trainees kind of going, I'm, I'd be really daunted about becoming a supervisor. I think that's definitely imbued me with a sense of confidence and inspiration to the point where um michelle you might see an email tomorrow morning asking me to go on the next <laughs> supervisor course um i'm i'm already preparing myself for the for the no given that i've just qualified but just so you know that that email and cbt will be therapists will make such good supervisors to other professions so again i'm i'm very much here coming from a non-iapt perspective um, and your your skills are so needed in in other mental health teams. So I, I really hope that there'll be more opportunities for CBT CBT therapists to take clinical supervisor roles 
outside of IAPT as well. Um, there certainly seem to be at the moment. I don't. I don't know what the, the landscape will be um, over the next few years. But I yeah. really hope hope so because you've got so much to offer. Definitely. Well, you've got me thinking just there, actually, Sarah, in terms of we've obviously spoken a lot about healthcare and we know that um, the high intensity training model and um, everything in this sort of ecosystem is geared towards placing people in IAPT. But we've also spoken a lot today about um, careers that can exist outside that system as well. Do you think there's also a place um, for CBT therapists, almost sometimes outside healthcare in general as well in terms of just having that those sort of reflective skills um and those supervisory skills that could lend themselves to to other sort of businesses and domains as well do you think yeah definitely like i mean i, I don't want to be um saying i'll oh, go and go and spend thousands of hge money and then yeah. and then leave and become <laughs> like an entrepreneur because that's not not in line with my values but but yeah i mean you know it, what, what's wrong with working part-time for the nhs and then part time doing doing something else. I think that's really good work life balance, actually. Um, and yeah, there's so many transferable skills in that kind of contracting, in that collaboration, in that even the kind of um, even that sort of behavioural experiment stuff, and that curiosity is really useful in the, in the business domain. And just general being psychologically aware mm. is in itself a really powerful leadership quality. Um, and, I, and I think absolutely that that would that would be really, really lapped up in um in in, in other settings, definitely. Yeah, totally. I mean, to echo what you, you you said there as well, I think about the sort of HEE stuff. Um, one thing that I think we're keen to do on the show is obviously acknowledge that um, IAPT does some great things, and and it's really nice um to be able to follow that pathway actually after you've um finished the course and after you've applied for um you know after you apply for pre-accreditation all that stuff to continue working in an iapp service but i think it's really important to consider that wider landscape as well and understand that um you're right i think life can also sometimes be made of a variety of puzzle pieces in a way and i think having a bit of mix and match across your week of, of different settings to work in yeah um i think is an, an important thing to consider as well um is there, is there anything else we kind of need to add on the sort of accreditation side of things do you think i don't know whether i made the point enough earlier really which is just it will become more and more valid and, and important i think as the nhs long-term plan is rolled out and actualized yeah. um and maybe don't even stop at one maybe go and get your secondary accreditation that's what it's called secondary accreditation um because it's 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 that kind of high intensity that that sort of level two um you know specialist you've got specialist skills in in an in an evidence-based intervention why stop at cbt why don't you go and learn systemic therapy next you know absolutely um well just to um, round off the interview i just want to say a big thank you to you sarah not only for for coming on the show but also for being our first guest um just as in a usual sort of cbt kind of way how have you felt about your experience on the show today <laughs> i've really enjoyed it thanks um it's always nice talking to like-minded people obviously but i do think we we've, we've had um you know a, a good discussion about some you know issues that are close to all of us really in our on our future yeah. careers and and it's just been a real pleasure to, to be on. I'm really grateful and kind of touched to be invited. And, and you know, if I am your first guest, then hopefully it'll inspire others to, to join as well. 
Hopefully so. Um, and alongside that, Sarah, um, is there anywhere that people can sort of find you on social media or keep up to date with what you're doing or anything like that? Yeah, I'm on um, LinkedIn is probably the main one. So just look up Sarah Lack on, on LinkedIn. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, um, thank you and, so much. And we'll hope to hopefully catch up again soon. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. So, Shell, what a lovely interview that was with Sarah. I really enjoyed that. What did you think about it? I, I well, I really love her. Yeah. <laughs> um, so interesting. Really great to have that other perspective and that other dynamic as well. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed that discussion. Thought it, and hopefully, it's offered some really useful information to the people that we're trying to reach. Um, so it's, it will have done its job, but fabulous really interesting lady totally and just to I suppose summarize my main takeaways from it particularly at the point where I am in my journey is to get the provisional accreditation done as soon as possible and make sure you maintain that accreditation rather than letting it lapse what what were your main takeaways from what we discussed I, I love how Sarah kind of really reiterated and brought that point home that although it feels a bit arduous that first year the process is worth it because once you've done it, reaccreditation is so much more simple than you expect it's going to be. Um, and it, I, I think it's just something we should do. So we don't use shoulds a lot, do we, in CBT? But I think this is probably a should moment rather than a could. Yes, uh, Albert Ellis might have a word with you after <laughs> after that. I don't mind. Bring it on. Okay. <laughs> I stand by it. Okay, go on. <laughs> So just to round off today's episode of the show, if you have taken anything away from this episode of Two Lost Souls, please hit that subscribe button on your podcatcher of choice uh, or recommend us to your friends. And both of those things really mean a huge amount to us. Um, Alternatively, if you're feeling generous, please feel free to to donate to our Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash TLS underscore pod. Finally, if there's anything you'd like to see us discuss or if you've got any feedback uh, on the shows we've put out so far, please feel free to give us a follow and drop us a line at TLS underscore pod on Twitter or at two lost souls podcast at gmail.com. Uh, all that's left, first of all, is to say a big thank you to Sarah Lack for being our guest for this episode and for that really enjoyable interview. Um, to say a big thank you to all of you out there for listening um, and a huge thank you to Shell. Thanks, Ravi. And Ravi, I was going to say, because you don't really talk about it very often, um, but you're a bit of a musician and I know that you've got a really great Christmas song and it's that time of year. So I'm wondering, where could people hear that? um so people can hear my christmas song some people out there will be like what i had no idea this is true this is sort of my secret double life that's now merging into my main life um yeah you can search the song mistletoe by ravi amrath on spotify apple music um napster if you're still in 1997 uh, youtube Um, anywhere you like uh, and that will play my my Christmas song thank you, you very much you could probably for... pop a link somewhere couldn't you I could probably pop a link in the show notes because you're thank quite you. clever you could definitely do that I reckon 
this is well I'm, I'm not going to own up to being clever but i could put an, a link somewhere thank you very much for that i will definitely plug that and thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug that as well it's good it's a good song i've heard it oh thank you very much and just to end today's episode rather than a groan worthy joke from me please enjoy this gem of humor from sarah lack so what is the favorite moment of christmas for a mindfulness practitioner the present moment I like that. I think that's my favourite joke we've ever had on the show. Thank you very much for that, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on Two Lost Souls. Two Lost Souls was presented by Ravi Amrath and Michelle Sudbury. To get in touch, contact TLS underscore pod on Twitter or email two lost souls podcast at gmail.com